Well, welcome again. My name's Mike. Um, this is now Parkside Church. We've changed the name from Harbor Golden Hill to Parkside Church. Uh, we've been going through the, um, the two chapters of Matthew's Gospel, or Matthew 9 today, Matthew 9, verse 9. If you want to, you can turn there. There's some Bibles on some of the chairs, or just listen in. And these are the two chapters that come right on the heels of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And last week we looked at uh, what was essentially the, the mountaintop, we said, the mountaintop of Jesus's, of this presentation of Jesus, because it was the culmination of Matthew's argument using stories of Jesus' life and ministry that said, Jesus is God. This is who Jesus is. But So now we're coming down the other side of the mountain, but I don't want you to think that things get easier, that we're pedaling downhill now or just running downhill because he's been presenting, Matthew's been presenting who is Jesus, and now he's looking at what does it mean to follow Jesus? And he begins, like Paul does in many ways, he begins with himself, and he effectively calls himself the chief of sinners. He says, look at me, I was a tax collector I was among the, the most ostracized people in, uh, in Galilee, in this area, and yet I followed Jesus and would eventually become uh, one of Jesus' apostles, the 12 men charged with taking the, uh, the lead of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So what I want to do today, we'll read the text, and then I want to look at what, what this looks like, what, what, what Matthew's life looked like. First, what does it mean, why was the tax collector considered a sinner? Why would he be considered among the chief of sinners uh, in his own eyes, in the eyes of others? And then look at what it means to follow Jesus, in particular for Matthew to follow Jesus. And then we're going to come back around to the end of this passage where Matthew uh, quotes Jesus, and Jesus quotes Hosea, and, um, and talks about God desiring mercy and not sacrifice. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of each of our minds and the actions of each of our lives be pleasing to you. Glorifying your name and moving us to 
paths that are joyful and joy in your good pleasures. In Jesus' name, amen. A friend of mine recently gave me a book that's written supposedly by Bill O'Reilly, the political columnist, uh, commentator, probably more so written by the sub-author or the co-author, right? It's called Killing Jesus and his string of books on uh, biographies of killing Lincoln, killing Kennedy. And so I've, I've been reading through this, this book, and, um, and it's, really, it's really gripping. I mean, the, the story uh, is told in a very, uh, a, a, almost a journalistic approach where you see different scenes of not just Jesus' life, but the lives of, uh, of the culture around him there in, in Galilee and in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and even in Rome and all the Roman emperors. Now, O'Reilly, of course, given his political bent, wants to point to taxes being the main problem in all of Judea and Galilee, which I think he overdoes on a number of occasions. But still, it's helpful to understand something of what the culture was in this time, in this place, because Matthew uh, is living someplace on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Galilee, which is in the north part of, of Israel. Now, it's separated from the southern part of of Israel, modern-day Israel, where Jerusalem is and Judea is by the the region of Samaria. So you remember the story of of Jesus coming down as a child uh, with his parents, and they would go around Samaria, right, to avoid the Samaritans as they came. So Samaria uh, separated these two regions. What's more interesting is is that in Galilee, there was a a regional ruler who was still subject to the Roman authorities who occupied the area. His name was Herod Antipas. And Antipas was either the son or the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you remember, was ruling this whole region, not just the area of Galilee, but the whole region of of Israel, what modern-day Israel, effectively, when Jesus was born. And, of course, Herod tries to kill Jesus when he hears that a king has been born. Now, Herod Antipas was fairly famous because in this new northern region, there was no capital city. There was no place for him to set up a throne. And so one of the things that he did was to build not one, but two, and probably even a third capital city in the region. Fairly small region, which means that he did have to tax people quite a bit to build these cities. Not only were taxes going to build his cities, his capitals, but they were also being funneled back to support the Roman Empire. And so there were a number of taxes that were being levied on these people in the area where Jesus is ministering. Now, in order to collect taxes... There was not a modern-day IRS. There wasn't the process that many of us are going through right now where we're pulling out the tax forms and we're pulling out all of our receipts and submitting the taxes and, uh, and getting a return, paying the amount. 
people paid taxes at various points along the way. So if they were bringing their goods to market in a city and came into the city, they would oftentimes have to pay taxes as they brought their goods into the city. If they had bought things in the city, they would have to pay taxes as they left the city. If they owned property, they would have to go and check in with somebody at the tax office and pay their property taxes or any number of other taxes. Now the Romans, the people who were in charge, would appoint people to collect these taxes. Oftentimes they didn't live in the area, but in order to do the grunt work, they would also employ people who lived in the area. So in this case, Jews. Jews who knew the community, knew the place, who probably were looking for some security and a full-time job, financial security anyway, and were willing to be the tax collectors, the local face of the tax collection among their friends. Now some of these Jews would extort other people, like the famous uh, short tax collector Zacchaeus, who stole from people, took more than they were supposed to take as tax collectors, and when he met Jesus and when Jesus converted his heart and transformed his heart, he paid back fourfold what he had stolen. But other tax collectors, like Matthew here, we don't know if they stole. In fact, the Romans were very careful that people would not collect more taxes than they were supposed to. That's bad PR for everybody, especially the Roman occupiers. But what we do know about Matthew is that Matthew at one time was named Levi. Levi was a Jewish name. Matthew is a Greek name. Perhaps it changed his name from Levi to Matthew because when he became a tax collector, all of his friends had to change as well. The people who he had grown up with, his family, his fellow Jewish followers in the region shunned him. And now he had no place to go but to befriend the other tax collectors and other sinners who had no place else to go as well. Now there's something interesting about this in how patterns of associations even form in our culture today. Because what we're all prone to do, like Matthew, is to associate with the type of people who will not judge us. We want to associate with people who make us feel good. And we avoid the people who make us feel guilty or would judge us. You see, this happens in all parts of life. It's with the cool kids in the school. It's with the athletes in a particular setting. It's happens in workplaces where people who are perceived to be better performers ostracize those who are perceived to be poorer performers. It happens in the church, sadly, when people come in and they feel like they are a much bigger sinner than anybody else in the room, and so they can't, they can't find a place there. When we think about the place of tax collectors... It should serve as a reminder for us who would be tempted to ostracize others who we perceive as bigger sinners than ourselves. And remember that the church, this room, this place, is really, as Pastor Dan Doriani called it, a society of sinners. A society of sinners. Another pastor who lived a long time ago is oftentimes associated with not being 
uh, gracious and merciful and compassionate, John Calvin said it this way. Now, if we feel disgust at being associated by baptism in the Lord's Supper with vile men and regard our connection with them as a sort of stain upon us, we ought immediately to descend into ourselves and to search without flattery our own evils. Such an examination will make us willingly allow ourselves to be washed in the same fountain with the most impure and will hinder us from rejecting the righteousness which he offers indiscriminately to all the ungodly. The life which he offers to the dead and the salvation which he offers to the lost. You see what Matthew is saying, what Calvin is saying, what Doriani is saying, is that Matthew, like Paul, like each of us, are called to view ourselves as the chief of sinners. And to not look to our own righteousness for any kind of hope of salvation, hope of reception, hope of fellowship, but to look to the salvation of Christ, to the love of Christ, which washes us clean regardless of the type of sinner that we had been, the types of sins that we continue to struggle with, the way that others perceive us or the way, maybe most dangerously, that we perceive ourselves. This is Matthew. Matthew who would be, go from being a great sinner to being a willing disciple of Jesus and eventually an apostle for Jesus' gospel. This is Matthew's autobiography, if you will. Now Matthew, like we've seen over and over, is a man of few words when he tells these stories. He doesn't give us the detail oftentimes that Luke does and that, uh, that, that Mark does. Matthew is laser-focused on his intent to show that Jesus is God and now simply to say that he was a great sinner and now he was following Jesus. Thankfully, Luke tells us a little bit more. Luke says, Matthew calls him by his old Jewish name, perhaps to say, point out this connection that he still had with the Jews. He says, Levi. Levi immediately got up and he left everything. He left everything to follow Jesus. It's interesting, though, that Luke goes on to say, right after that, he left everything. He goes immediately on to say, and then he went back to his house and invited all of his friends and he threw a great feast. I mean, now most of us, when we think about Matthew leaving everything, we think he just picked up and headed out and his house was left to whoever wanted to come and take habitation in it, right? But no, Matthew, when he leaves everything, the first thing that he does is he goes and invites his friends and he brings them to meet Jesus, now, wouldn't it be interesting to hear the conversation in that room? This is a detail that none of the gospel writers gives us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they, none of us tell us how Jesus and, and, the, and these, these tax collectors uh, conversed, what happened. But I think we could get some idea, some idea by looking at another interaction between another sinner and Jesus and that's the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, the ostracized Samaritans. 
that John tells us about in chapter 4. Remember this woman? Jesus goes to the well and he asks the woman, will you draw me some water to drink? She says, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. He says, if you knew who I was, you would not ask me that question. You would ask me for water. She says, how can you give me water? You don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. He says, no, I'm talking about living water that's far more satisfying than all of life. And then Jesus says, interesting question, will you go back and get your husband and bring him here? She says, I don't have a husband. He says, no, I I know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And now you're with a man who's not your husband, you're sixth. Now let's imagine that same conversation playing out with these tax collectors. The tax collectors come at Matthew's invitation and Jesus says, will you pass the bread? And they say, Bread. Why are you why are you asking me to pass you bread? He says, No, I want to give you something greater than that, but pass the bread first. They say, Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know that we're the ones who aren't allowed to be in the presence of other Jews in good standing? All the synagogue leaders, they won't let us anywhere near the synagogue. We have to hang out with other tax collectors and the prostitutes and everybody else who no one likes. And Jesus, like this woman, says, I know. I know everything about you. I know everything that you've done, and yet, here I am. Let's talk. I've come here into your presence because I have something to give you. Because I'm not going to treat you like the way that the Pharisees do or any of the other synagogue leaders do because I am inviting you in because I have come to show you mercy. I have come to welcome you. It's an interesting way of following Jesus, isn't it, for Matthew? Brings his friends, the friends that no one else will be friends with. Jesus sits down with them and eats at the risk of ruining his own reputation. Jesus was willing to take these kinds of risks. Matthew was willing to take this kind of risk. Interesting question, did Matthew have to stop being a tax collector to be a follower of Jesus? And the answer shortly is no. Matthew didn't. He could have continued to be an honest tax collector and still been a follower of Jesus, but Jesus was calling him to more than simply following him. He was calling him to a particular task to be his apostle. Now, many of us are in jobs that are difficult to do, and oftentimes we're faced with honest, uh, with decisions that, that question whether we're going to be honest or not. And the, the call, the clear call of Matthew here in this passage is that when we're faced with those, Jesus' clear call is that we would be honest, that we would do our jobs well when other people around us are not doing them honestly or not doing them with integrity, that we would do that because it has a witness to others around us. In fact, oftentimes we're called to stay in those places that are dishonest and continue to bring people to Jesus. Oftentimes by just being in their presence and engaging with them in life. Following Jesus did not mean leaving their friends, his friends, Matthew's friends. 
following Jesus did mean entering into a relationship with his friends that was risky. Now let me bring up another risky story because every time I read this story here, it reminds me of this amazing story that I heard at one point from Pastor Tony Campolo, Campolo, I believe. Tony Campolo about an experience that he had when he went to um, speak at a a conference, I believe, in Hawaii. He had taken a flight that got in late, I think about 2 or 3 in the morning, and on his way to his hotel... He was hungry, and the only place that he could find to eat in the whole place was a little greasy spoon diner. He said he could barely look at the menu. He couldn't even touch the menu. It was so disgusting. He ordered a donut and a cup of coffee, and the man picked up the man serving, picked up the donut with his hands. I wish you would have just grabbed a pair of tongs to hand me that. But while he's eating there, and the only one eating in the restaurant... Eight prostitutes walk in, having finished their work for the night. Being a small place, they took seats on either side of him on the, at the, uh, the food counter and just boisterously and, uh, and, uh, and with all kinds of details started their discussion and he said he started planning his exit strategy. And then he heard one of the women say to another one, you know, tomorrow's my birthday, I'm going to be 39 And her, quote, friend responded, well, what do you want me to do about it? You want me to throw you a party? You want me to buy you a cake and sing you happy birthday? And she said, no, I don't expect that. No one's ever thrown me a party. I just wanted to share that it was going to be my birthday. And Campola decided to stay there until they all left. And after they left, he said to the, uh, the, the worker there, his name was Harry, does that woman, do those women come in here uh, most every night? He said, yeah, every night. About the same time, yeah, every, every night, about the same time. That one uh, who was sitting there, yeah, her name's Agnes. He said, what do you think we think about throwing her a birthday party tomorrow night? And Harry, who had been gruff the whole time, got a small smile on his face, and he went and called his wife, who did the cooking, and shared the idea. Tony said, I'll tell you what, I'll come and decorate, I'll bring a cake, and we'll throw a party here tomorrow, tomorrow night. And Harry said, no, I'll take care of the cake, that's my job. You bring the the decorations. And so at 2.30 the next morning, Tony came back after speaking and he hung streamers and he made a sign saying happy birthday. Around 3.15, word evidently had gotten out because he said just about all the prostitutes of the area started streaming in. And jam-packed in the room... They waited, and at 3.30, Agnes walked in, and they all screamed, Happy Birthday. You could tell that she was a little bit weak in the knees when she saw it. And they started to sing, Happy Birthday, and then Harry brought out the cake, and she openly wept. And Harry, after they all sang, said, Blow out the candles, we need to eat, and 
She didn't blow out the candles. Blow out the candles, we need to eat it. She didn't blow out the candles. Eventually Harry blew out the candles. Gave her the knife to cut the cake and she said, can I, can I wait just a minute to cut the cake? I said, sure, wait as long as you want to. If you want to, you can take the cake home. And she said, really? She said, I just live around the two blocks down. Let me go take it home and I'll be back. And she, she took the cake and she, she went home. And, and Tony said that everybody was just sitting there in silence. They didn't know what to do now. <laughs> and so he said, well, let's pray. And so they all prayed. He prayed for Agnes. The prayer ended and Harry said to Tony, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you, do you pastor? And Tony said, in a moment of brilliance, he didn't know where it came from. He simply answered, I pastor a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. <laughs> He said, I've never heard of a church like that. I'd like to be a part of a church like that. And Tony said, that's the type of church that Jesus is wanting to build. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. He came to save those who were sick in need of a physician. The Pharisees were just as much in need of a physician as the sinners and tax collectors. They just didn't perceive their own sickness. Now I tell that story about Tony Campolo and the prostitutes and it's a moving story for me. I'm reminded of the grace of God and how he enters into dark places, but I think that we can sometimes miss the point of what Jesus is saying, if you will, fall off the horse on the other side. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and oftentimes people like Tony Campolo will say, this proves that God wants us to go and serve those who are in need, show mercy to prostitutes, and is not so concerned about us coming to church and going through the rhythms of being a part of a church family. I want to say that that view of things is perhaps even more dangerous than the place that the Pharisees were in. Because what you move from is a position of self-righteousness based on all of your following the rules, following the rituals, to a self-righteousness that's based on your own deeds of mercy. And in fact, if we're familiar with the story of the prophet Hosea, who Jesus is quoting when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, we learn a whole different paradigm, a whole different way of thinking about who God is and what he desires from us. Do you know the story of Hosea? The story where God called one of his prophets. Now prophets were people who followed the rules. They did things that God told them to do. He said to Hosea, will you go and take a prostitute as your wife? 
Hosea, a little bit shocked at first, I'm sure, said, I will. And you think this is going to be a great story of redemption. The woman comes out of prostitution and her life is transformed and everything is happy, but she doesn't. She marries Hosea and she continues her life of prostitution and adultery. And she bears a son and then she bears a daughter and God says, name that daughter no mercy. Because you continue to abuse my generosity and she doesn't want my mercy. And then they bear another son and call his name not my people. Because you have chosen to not be my people. You've gone and you've run after other gods and this picture of Hosea is the picture of all of us who had been called by God, who Jesus calls his bride, who have gone and in the graphic language of Hosea have whored after other gods, have trusted in things other than God. Now some of the time they're gross negligence, some of the time they're worshiping Baals or false gods, gods that go by names, and some of the time they are things that are much more subtle, gods of money, Perhaps like the tax collectors wanted to find their security in that well-paying job. Some of the time it's power. Some of the time it's sex itself. What are the idols that we're drawn to? God says, you go and you worship those things. You go and you marry those things. Like Gomer, Hosea's wife, you prostitute yourself there. In fact, I didn't want to say it at the time, but when Campolo answered the man and he said, the type of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. He didn't say prostitutes. He said, the type of church that throws birthday parties for whores at three in the morning. Now think about the choice of that word. It is a startling choice. It probably startles us when we hear it. And yet this is what God does. He startles us by the reality of calling sin what it is. We like to gloss over it. We like to pretend it's not as bad as it really is. But God, every time in Scripture, over and over, He doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't candy coat it. He doesn't make it sound better than it is. He just calls it what it is. And then Hosea goes on to show how God, in His mercy, says to that child who's called no mercy, I will have mercy on no mercy. Says that child who was called not my people, I will call you my people who were not my people. In the stark reality of our sin, God's grace enters in and shows forgiveness that covers it all. There's nothing that's hidden from God. Jesus says, I know all those things that you did. He says it to the tax collectors. He says it to the woman at the well. He says it to each of us. I know everything. You think, you pull the wool over my eyes. You mean you convince everybody in the church building. You convince the pastor you're not really as bad as you think. But Jesus said, I know. I mean, I'll tell you as a pastor, I know some of these things too. I can guess partly because I know my own heart, partly because I hear a lot of stories from all of you, partly because I hear stories from other pastors. And yet, like Tony, like Jesus, like so many of us in this room, we say, 
I am going to hang out with you because I know the mercy that Jesus has shown to me. When God says, when Jesus, who is God, says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, those who tend to the political left say, God wants us to be merciful to others. Those who tend to the political right says, no, God wants us to go and worship him rightly in the presence of God. Jesus says, I want you to show mercy. I want you to sacrifice. I want you to worship rightly. But the mercy I desire is the mercy that I'm showing to you, not your mercy for other people. Catch that? Hosea. He's not saying, I desire you to show mercy. He's saying, I desire you to receive God's mercy. Because when we reject Jesus, we reject God's mercy. When we reject his sacrifices, we reject God himself and the salvation he's won for us. I desire for you to know my mercy. It's not that you're not showing mercy. It's that you're not receiving my mercy. This is the type of thing that changes the hearts of the woman at the well. The tax collectors sitting in that room. Perhaps the other prostitutes sitting in that room with Jesus. Perhaps those of us in this room who have rejected Jesus' salvation haven't been known what to make sense of it. We felt judgment when we come into a place. Perhaps like this at times the salvation and the mercy that God wants us to experience day in and day out in every part of life and then to show it to others. It's beautiful when it happens. I think we see it some in our congregation in beautiful ways. I know I've heard people experience it here. Praise be to Jesus. Amen. Father, I simply ask that you would help us to Throw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. To show mercy to others. To worship you and to sacrifice our life as Matthew did. Not to earn your favor, but because Jesus has done that for us. It's in his name that we pray and that we continue to worship you in spirit and in truth, in song, and in all of our words and deeds. Amen.